Hello and welcome back to Instant Mom, navigating solo foster and adoptive motherhood while attempting a go at sanity. So I think one of my better qualities as a person is that I am pretty quick to admit when I am wrong. Um, And I'm wrong a lot, so this is a really helpful trait to have. Um, I was an atheist for 15 years and then I had to be like, just kidding, I actually believe in a God now. And I said I never wanted to have children ever, ever, ever. And then I realized I was wrong about that. So I thought today I would take a cue from this uh, positive trait that I have and talk about all of the things I have done wrong as a foster parent. And I have picked 12 things in particular that I've done wrong as a foster parent, um, not as a parent in general, because that would probably be another three episodes. But hopefully um, listening to this can help you avoid some of the same mistakes I made, and it might make your foster parent journey a little smoother. So number one, I was really impatient. I still am really impatient, but it's something that I've done wrong. Um, The system moves really slowly, and you are not in control of any of the timelines. I can't think of a single aspect of foster care in which you are in control of the timing. So it doesn't help to be impatient because you just get yourself all riled up um, and all angry over something that you can't impact or affect or fix. You're not in charge of how long it takes to get certified. You're not in charge of how long it takes to get a placement call. You're definitely not in charge of how long it takes for um, the case plan to play out. So um, I think I would have focused on um, anything else except for stressing about the timeline because there is nothing you can do as a foster parent to impact the timeline. So being impatient does not help. Along the same lines, number two, the biggest mistake I made was worrying. Obviously, worrying is unavoidable, but in my earlier years of being a foster parent, I spent so much time and mental energy just running over these scenarios in my mind until I made myself crazy. And just like the timeline of foster care, um, there's not a lot you can do to impact the decisions in foster care. And I think understanding that early on will save you a lot of stress and grief. Um, That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to change things if you think that they need to be changed or that you shouldn't speak up about um, the case of your foster child. But you have to go in with a mindset of, I'm going to do all that I can and then I'm going to leave it on the table and be at peace with that. Because once you have done all that you can do, um, there's no sense in worrying about if it will change the outcome, if it will change the case plan, um, because you can't do that as a foster parent. So um, I try to cut back on the worrying and know that it's like the timeline completely out of my control. The third biggest mistake I made very early on in fostering was not thinking of foster care as my quote, real life. So when I first started fostering, I was in a very different mindset that I'm in now. I started fostering because I wanted the experience of motherhood, but I did not want to be a forever mom. I didn't want to adopt. I didn't want to have my own children biologically. I really liked the temporary aspect of foster care. But the downside of that was 
when things would get tough with my placements, when the case was really tricky, when I was having a rough night with the baby, I would sort of view my role as a foster parent of being like, um, not part of my real life. Like this is a thing I do, but once this baby is reunited or once this baby moves on, then I can get back to my real life. And that's kind of painful to admit now and sort of shameful to admit, um, because it makes it sound like I didn't care about the children or I didn't like what I was doing and that wasn't the case at all. But I just kind of, I remember with my first few placements, I just wasn't used to the stress of being a parent, the emotional and physical exhaustion of it all. And so I would like fantasize about all the things that I would do once they moved on from my home. And I would think about it as like, once I get back to my real life, here are the things that I'll do. Here are the trips that I'll take. Here are the restaurants I'll go to with my free time. And that just added a lot of anxiety um, and stress. I I thought at the time it was helping to kind of compartmentalize like, okay, I'm a mom until this placement leaves me and then I go back to my real life. But it actually made the stress and the anxiety worse because I couldn't just embrace the moment and be in the moment. And I think um, that's something that a lot of foster parents fall into. If you've got a particularly tricky kid or a fit that's not quite right, or it's just a really stressful time, um, because foster care is designed to be temporary, it doesn't always work out that way, but it is designed to be temporary, um, we can start fantasizing about, okay, when this part of foster care is over. And, um, And I think by not just kind of leaning into it as my real life, Um, I just caused myself a lot of worry and anxiety. And once I did start accepting, like, this is my life, this is it, this might be a temporary placement, but this is still my life while they're here. And I'm going to lean in hard to that and accept that as part of my life. Then it actually became much easier. It didn't feel like a never ending babysitting job. It felt like I was in control of my life. This was, um, the situation was something that I owned, so to speak, Um, and it just, it it allowed me to relax into a routine. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a tricky one to explain if you haven't been a foster parent because it sounds so callous, but, um, I think maybe part of it too is just my desire to not get super attached and protect myself a little bit. And by planning for my life, once the placement left me, maybe that, that was part of my defense mechanism. I'm not sure, but it was, um, a really bad mindset for a lot of reasons, and it didn't actually um, make my life any easier. In fact, it made the whole thing harder. Number four, a big mistake that I made is not asking enough questions. Um, I think sometimes when we are presented with information in foster care, it's often incomplete or really vague, or it's thrown at us really quickly, and it's tough to say like, okay, wait, Um, slow down caseworker. I'm going to need to take some notes. I need to ask some follow-up questions. I need you to repeat this thing because I don't understand it. I need you to give me some additional background here because I'm not sure what you're talking about. Um, That can be hard to do because this information is just coming at you so quickly. Um, But these are really major decisions. I mean, these are children's lives that we're talking about. So if you're ever going to slow down and ask questions, this would be the thing to ask questions about. Um, So I wish I would have asked more questions. I wish I would have asked 
for more background information, for more follow-up. And this is about every aspect of foster care. So when I get the call about a child, I wish I would have asked more questions. When they were explaining the case, I would have wish I would have asked more. Um, there's just so much that you don't know that you don't even know what you don't know. And I think by being curious and continuing to ask for context, um, that's kind of the only way that you can learn more and make more informed decisions. So my takeaway here is just like drill everyone. <laughs> um, kind of along the same lines, mistake number six was not taking enough time to think before I would say yes or say no to a placement. So again, you're just, you get this phone call and the caseworker is like, we have a three-week-old baby and she's uh, African-American and um, she was removed from domestic violence and uh, can we come over in an hour? And they're just like throwing this information at you and they're just desperate to get this baby into a home. And so I would always just be like, yeah, <laughs> or no, but I would never like going back to um, number four was not asking enough questions or the right questions. But more importantly, I need to remember and I needed to remember then that I have every right to say, okay, I'm going to take in this information. I'm going to think about it. And if you can give me 45 minutes, I'll call you back and give an answer. Um, you know, you don't have the luxury of saying, let me sleep on this. Um, let me let me think about this for a couple days. Sometimes you don't even have the luxury of saying, can you give me an hour? Because if it's the middle of the night, they can't just like wait around for another hour while the baby is in the DCS offices while you think about it. But you can almost always ask for half an hour or 45 minutes until they move on to the next person. And I think if I made that a habit, I would probably say yes more often, which I think is a good thing. And maybe I would have said no a few times because it really wasn't a great fit or a great time for whatever reason. So that was a really big mistake I made was feeling pressured to give an answer right away. Um, and my takeaway there is to take your time or as much time as you can in foster care, which sometimes may be 20 minutes, but hey, that is 20 minutes you can think about things. Um, number seven, a big mistake I made was thinking that my role as a foster parent was to protect the children from their parents. My mindset was, oh my God, your parents did this horrible thing to you. Let me rescue you from that situation. And sometimes that's true, right? Sometimes the abuse and neglect is so severe that it is inexcusable and there's no amount of context that makes it okay or that will even allow you to understand why a parent did what they did. But um, oftentimes the reason why a child is in foster care is a bit more subtle and more often than not these days it involves um, addiction and trauma that the parent has gone through. And so I've, this has been a fairly recent shift, but I have shifted to not thinking my role as a foster parent is to protect this foster child from this mean, horrible, terrible parent. But my role is to love and care for the child while their parents have some space and time to get better and heal and do better. And that's not just, I mean, it sounds like, okay, well, you just like switched some words around, but it's more than just saying it differently. It really shifts your entire mindset and opens you up to empathizing with the parents, wanting to see them get help, um, and moving into point number eight, um, 
not demonizing the bio parent. So that's a big mistake I've made throughout my time as a foster parent is to immediately judge and demonize the bio parent. And again, sometimes that's really difficult when you hear about these cases where, you know, the parent has clearly done something unforgivable to the child. Um, You know, I'm not a Pollyanna. Of course, you're not going to be like, oh, well, they were traumatized as a child themselves. And so I can understand why this happened. You know, sometimes it's completely inexcusable. And sometimes the parents do need to be demonized. But in the vast majority of the cases I've had, and I would say, the vast majority of the cases that um, are pretty common in foster care, the parents aren't mean. They're not evil. They're not. Um, they're not destined to just remain these terrible parents. That you don't have to give up on them. They are people who have hit rock bottom in their lives. Um, a lot of times because of addiction and substance abuse issues, and they need help and they can improve. So um, I, I really cringe when I think back to my early days of just being like, oh my God, this person is never going to change. Why are we even trying to help them? Let's just lock them up and throw away the key. I should just adopt this child tomorrow. Um, is a really terrible mindset to go into foster care with. Um, another way in which I really screwed up as a foster parent was not taking advantage of every single financial incentive provided to me. The state of Indiana, as I have found out, as other foster parents in other states have, have brought to my attention, is not really generous in their financial support of foster parents. Like, we're probably one of the worst. But there were still small financial incentives that I never took advantage of of a foster parent for a number of really terrible reasons. First was pride. I thought, well, I'm not going to be somebody who takes care of that. Like, I'm better than that. I was basically just a snob, right? Uh, Like, I don't want your charity. Um, Some of it was like um, logical fallacies. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't accept the incentives because I would say, well, financially, I don't really need those incentives. I'm not low income. I'm not struggling to make ends meet. So I'm going to save those resources for a foster parent who needs them more than me. But that's not actually how that works. Like um, every foster parent just gets these things. It's not like if I pass it up, then it gets doubled to somebody else who needs it more. So um, my little like martyr thing wasn't actually helping anybody. Um, And also some of it was just like logistically, uh, some of the financial assistance can be a hassle. Um, One example is that I didn't accept WIC, which is um, essentially like food stamps. And all foster parents, regardless of their um, income level, I mean, you could be a billionaire foster parent, you are still eligible for um, vouchers for food and formula for if you have children under a certain age, if you foster children under a certain age. Um, and it's because the eligibility isn't based on the foster parent, because again, you can be a billionaire and still get it. It's based on the foster child. And since foster children, um, are wards of the state and therefore don't have, um, any sort of like guaranteed parental financial support, they're eligible for these benefits. Um, 
But it is kind of logistically annoying because in order to get these benefits, you have to go down to the WIC office and you have to bring the kids with you and you have to fill out this paperwork and it's a really long line and it's a waiting room. And I was a snob and was like, well, I don't want to wait in a waiting room with other people who actually need WIC as if I was better than them because I made more money. Um, And then you have to go back every so often to just show up in person and and sort of like re-qualify And I'm like, you know, to save a couple hundred bucks a month on formula and baby food, it just wasn't worth it to me. But it adds up over time. And, um, you know, I always complain about how the stipend for foster parents in Indiana is so small, it doesn't even cover a third of daycare for an infant. Well, if I would have used WIC, for example, and didn't have to spend any money on formula and baby food, um, then maybe that would go a little bit further in um, taking care of my daycare costs. So um, I just left a lot of money on the table that could have made things a little bit easier for me. Um, There are also other financial incentives that I've never taken care of. There's a a one-time clothing allowance when you get a placement. You get, I think it's like $120 or something you can use at um, specific clothing stores for the foster child. There's like a one-time-a-year allowance you can use that I want to say is like 75 bucks on just a special something for your foster kid, whether that's a present or signing them up for a camp. Um, of course, it's only like, I think it's like 75 or or $100, so it's um, not going to cover all of those things, but it's something. Um, You get a similar allowance for their birthday, you get a similar allowance for Christmas, but it is kind of a pain in the butt because um, you have to, I mean, you pay for all those things yourself first, and then you have to fill out these sort of complex invoices and submit them through this archaic system, then you wait 30 days, and then you get reimbursed. And I was like, okay, like, it's a couple hundred dollars a year, I don't need it, I'm just not going to use any of these things. But again, if I went back and totaled up all the incentives that I left on the table over the course of the eight children that I've had, like that probably really adds up. And, um, you know, I make good money, but I'm not a millionaire. So that probably could have helped. So don't be too proud to take advantage of the support that um, your state gives you. Another thing that I did wrong was turning down help. I've talked about this a lot, so I won't get into it a ton here, but um, I was trying to play the martyr. Um, I didn't mean to, but I thought, you know, I've decided to undertake um, the role of being a foster parent, and I don't want to burden anybody else with my responsibilities or problems. And I thought I was doing everyone a favor by turning down their offers of help because I thought they didn't actually want to help. They just wanted to do the polite thing and and ask if they could help. And so by me saying, no, 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 we're fine, they were actually like, phew, I didn't want to help anyway. Maybe that is the case for some people, but I think a lot of people actually did want to help and were annoyed when I kept turning them down. Um, So again, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if I look at all the help I turned down from people over the course of the four years, I wonder how much of my sanity I could have saved if I would have said yes to everyone who asked if they could lend a hand. Um, And then the last mistake I have made, and this is a mistake that I am still trying to work through, is sharing too much. 
Now, um, when you have a foster child, there are some things you just cannot share publicly because they will take your license away. You can't show their photos. That's why you always see um, foster parents putting like a heart emoji or something over their faces. You can't share their real names. You can't share any identifying details. You can't share information about their case, right? So there's just a lot you can't share. But um, even still, there's enough information that you can share that gives people an idea of the case without going into super specifics. And I shared a lot about Jack because obviously he is mine <laughs> legally. And I talk a lot about him and and how he came to be and how he came to be part of my family and my son. Um, and I did that all with really good intention that I wanted to educate people about foster care and adoption. And I wanted to show what's possible and show the outcomes of these children But as he gets older, I think about how those stories will affect him. You know, I think about our local news station, our local NBC affiliate, um, did two stories on uh, me and Jack. One when he was still in foster care and one um, once we finalized our adoption. And I think the stories were told really well. Um, But sometimes I still look at those stories and I cringe. Like one of the headlines for one of the stories was like, single mother adopts um, like drug exposed baby. It was was something along those lines. And uh, it's just like, oh, God, (laughs) you know, um, it's sort of a very unfortunate way to put it. It makes Jack sound like he was a charity case or a cause or... um, some heroic undertaking that I took and it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't show who he is as a full person right he just it kind of diminishes him to his circumstances that he couldn't control and I think a lot of times about you know when Jack is older and he googles himself or his friends google him like what are they going to think when they see that story or when he's applying for jobs in his 20s and somebody Googles him and they see this story, what are they going to think? Like, is he going to want to have this history out there for the entire world to see? And maybe, I mean, maybe he's like, yeah, I'm proud of my whole history and I don't have anything to be ashamed of. And uh, that's part of my life. Or maybe he'll be really mad at me for it. And so it's a really fine line that I am always trying to balance and that I think I get wrong a lot of the time of wanting to educate and empower and inspire and inform by sharing my story. But then also being really cognizant of the fact that Jack is too young to consent to any of this and he might not like the fact that I'm talking about this. So sort of like my new thing that I have been trying to think about is would I want whatever I'm saying or sharing to be posted on a billboard with Jack's face next to it when he's 20 years old? Like if that, if I would be comfortable with it, then okay. So for me, it's like sharing funny photos of him uh, playing around the house. Yeah, I would feel totally comfortable if there was a billboard with Jack's face on it when he's 20 years old next to his silly baby photo. But I don't know that I can say the same thing about the headline, woman adopts drug-exposed baby, right? That feels derogatory. So that's sort of the um, 
the litmus test that I'm trying to keep in my mind when I am thinking of what I share in the future. And I am sure I will continue to get it wrong, but I'm going to do my best. So those are the 12 things that I have done wrong as a foster parent. Those are not the only 12 things I've done wrong as a foster parent. I'm sure there are 1,200 more, but hopefully that will give you a starting point of um, what to keep in mind yourself when you are going through this process. And I'd also love to know what other lessons you have of things that you did really wrong um, or things that you see um, other people doing wrong when they are a foster parent. So as always, I love to hear from you guys. I really appreciate the emails and the messages I've received. Um, it's so nice to know that people are listening to this and that they um, are learning something or taking something away. So I'm really glad that there are um, people out there listening. So thank you for listening. But as always, you can contact me with any um, thoughts or questions or ideas for future episodes. Um, find me on Instagram at efriedland, or you can also send me a message, elizabeth.friedland at gmail.com. Um, and thank you for listening. And next time, I've got to record this. I've been putting it off because it's going to be an episode where I cry a lot. It's part two of the Q&A. This is like months overdue at this point, but it will be all of the hard questions that people ask, like, how do you say goodbye? How do you um, prepare for a placement to leave? How do you explain to Jack about his past when he's older? I don't know. Still trying to figure that one out, guys. But I promise, I promise, I promise I will record that sometime in the next year. (laughs) Um, So thank you for asking those questions. And I will see you next time.